There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. There is an incredible facility right here in downtown Toronto that is helping on the front lines and is doing incredible innovative research. They are a facility that treats everybody with dignity and they need your help. May 6th to 12th is Mental Health Week. If this matters to you, help CAMH. There's no better place for your resources. Go to camh.ca slash CanadaLand and donate now. Help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. On August 31st, 2009, Darcy Allen Shepard was killed on Bloor Street West. Michael Bryant, the former Attorney General of Ontario, was charged with criminal negligence causing death and dangerous driving causing death. In the immediate aftermath, much was made of Bryant's reputation for pugnacious, aggressive behavior. The term road rage came up many times. The press paid close attention to the fact that Bryant almost instantly hired Navigator as his crisis PR team and Marie Hanane as his criminal defense lawyer. But then... As the days progressed, the media's focus shifted. It shifted away from Bryant's reputation and on to Darcy Allen Shepard's. Shepard, we were told, was a squeegee punk, bike messenger, a drunk, also aggressive and confrontational. Less than a year later, all charges against Michael Bryant were dropped. The Crown prosecutor proclaimed that Shepard had been the aggressor and produced a photo of Darcy Allen Shepard, mohawked and half-naked, screaming into the driver's side window of a different car. Since then, Michael Bryant has been telling his side of the story again and again. He told it to Amanda Lang in a one-hour-long CBC interview. He told it in a Toronto Life magazine cover story about his surprise comeback. And he told it in his published memoir, 28 Seconds, in which Michael Bryant revealed his own history of alcoholism. 
Even Wikipedia's account of the incident includes three instances of the term, according to Bryant. Well, today you'll hear someone else's account of the death of Darcy Allen Shepard. Two accounts, actually, neither of which has been heard by the public before. Wayne Scott is an independent documentary filmmaker, producing a film about Darcy Allen Shepard for Agency Films. A preview of this documentary will be posted today on Now Magazine's website, and a crowdfunding campaign for the documentary will soon follow. Wayne Scott has obtained and provided to Canada Land audio tape of the two closest eyewitnesses to the initial altercation between Bryant and Shepard. One recording is from a Homicide Squad interview conducted the day after Shepard's death with one of the eyewitnesses, and the other is from a 9-11 call made by the other eyewitness just moments after the incident occurred. You will hear them both, and then you will hear me in conversation with Darcy Allen Shepard's father, Alan Shepard. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Adam Baxelmassey, Leslie Wimbush, David Hope, Ella, Brendan Stacy, Jennifer Van Evra, Dresden Rowe, Mark Wright, Marlene, Kelly Smart, and Gordon McCaig. Gordon, why did you decide to be awesome? Because I wanted to see sort of a news broadcast of some sort on a fairly regular basis that was not under the thumb of Bell or the Conservative government or something like that, right? Some of the best news you get is from these independent organizations. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world, and uh, it's available here in Canada. And this time of year, we're all emerging from our our winter like seclusion and, uh, you know, patio season and, and socializing, and it can be terrifically fun, but it can also create a lot of pressure. And some people get, like, anxiety, social anxiety from being out too much. What did Iggy Pop say about social life? It's torture dressed as fun. It doesn't need to be torture. I think it's just about finding like the right balance uh, of, of how much of other people do you want. I mean, we need each other, but I think that at a certain point it can become overwhelming. And talking to somebody about yourself, about your social life, about your relationships um, is a way of gaining insight into what is right for you. It's not selfish to examine that with a professional. And as the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Listeners of the show get 10% off of their first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's better H-E-L-P, BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode of CanadaLand is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We got a tour of their facilities in their downtown Toronto campus, and I was blown away by the heroic work that these people are doing. They are saving lives every day. I know people whose lives were saved, and they just really care about the dignity of the people who turn to them for help. Look, we talk a lot about these issues on Canada Land. We talk about the crisis that is claiming 20 lives every day in Canada to drug overdoses, but we don't give you a lot of options of what you can do about it. CAMH is an option. CAMH desperately needs resources that they directly put into their work, saving lives and turning people's lives around. Listen, May 6th to 12th is Mental Health Week. This is when they need your help the most. Go to camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode is also brought to you by our first sponsor ever, FreshBooks the super easy-to-use cloud accounting solution that's designed for freelancers, entrepreneurs, and small business owners like Sophie Kwaja. 
Sophie, what can you tell me about your business? Uh, Allison Littles is a footwear lifestyle brand, uh, an ethical product line as well. And why do you use FreshBooks? We operate between Canada and Switzerland. Um, we've got a showroom in Paris. We've got ad agencies in New York. We've got retailers across North America. So we're all over the place all the time. And we needed some online cloud-based system to be able to interact effectively with all of our partners. So FreshBooks is a great solution. FreshBooks Cloud Accounting. It is painless. I use it. If you send invoices, you should try using it too. You can use it free for 30 days when you go to freshbooks.com slash CanadaLand. And when you sign up, tell them who sent you. There at the stoplight was a car and a bicyclist. They were stopped at the lights. And the first thing I certainly noticed was the cyclist was... My first image, as I recall, was pulling up in front of the car uh, and had a smile on his face. The cyclist did. I'm going to piss you off type of smile to the driver and pulled his his bike right in front of the the hood, uh, blocking his way. And... And it was, it was weird because you saw that there was, some, there was an altercation going on. You could just see it. It was, you know, I, I don't know where it started. I don't know how it began, but certainly there, uh, there was an altercation taking place. And uh, I looked at the car. It was a convertible. And I noted there were two people in the car, uh, a man and a woman. And the thing that really struck me, I, I, even at that point in time, was there, there, were no, there was no verbal altercation between the two. Absolutely none. Uh, the driver was stone-faced, uh, passive, and the woman was also just sitting there. So there were there was certainly not any screaming at this point in time. So the cyclist, as I said, was right in front of the car, and the car then moved forward very slowly onto his back wheel, and then uh, the cyclist fell off his bike. And again, you know, the, the thing that again just strikes me is, I mean, I, we've all been guilty of certainly getting frustrated with other drivers and some of some expletives and so on, but there was no dialogue at all. Uh, the fellow fell off his bike. Uh, he got, got up, picked up his bike, uh, got on his bike again, and for some reason, the car then accelerated at a very high speed and knocked the fella onto the front of his car. You know, it was at that point when you think to yourself that this is where the guy should have just said, you know, he should, the driver, in my opinion, should have just said, oh, this is not worth it. I'm going to get out of here and I'll scream and yell at my wife or whatever later on. But so he, he hit him. He hit him full on at, uh, at high speed. The cyclist obviously would have fell off the car and fell onto uh, the driver's side of the car. The bike then was in the middle of the road. The guy got up and the car started to move away. And I would say that the cyclist ran after the car, but the, but the car had to maneuver around the bike. The cyclist then somehow latched onto the car. Um, and from what I saw, he had his hand inside the car and it was either on the headrest or on the, um, the driver's door, on the inside of the driver's door. And that's when the car just, uh, the, the fellow put his foot, maximum gas, and, and 
uh, and took this uh, cyclist away with him. And then as the car dragged him and there were sparks coming out from under the car, uh, the fellow was not letting go. And, and to be honest with you, I mean, it's one of those things when you look at it and you think, well, if he lets go, he may have a chance, you know, with some severe damage. But that car was going very, very fast. And then it swerved going, uh, going west onto the other side of the road because there's road works there. And, uh, and, and, I, and that's where when it went in front of the, util- the first utility van parked um, closer to Avenue Road is when we, we lost sight of the end result. How would you describe the style of driving that you saw from the driver? I mean, uh, I mean, there's uh, it's almost you know broken down the stages, right? I think the first time when he nudged his tire it was like, "Look, you ass, you know, this is uh, you know, I'm just going to show you sort of thing, you know." And and then after that, it was, uh, you know, I mean. Yeah. I mean, he hit the guy. He, 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 he as, as far as I'm concerned, and I'll say it anywhere, he, he purposely hit that guy. And, uh, and, and as far as I'm concerned, he could have, uh, like all of us, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm as bad as anyone else in terms of, uh, you know, getting frustrated with people on the road. But, you know, you make a decision, right, at, at, at a point in time where you could either, you know, but but he, he had an opportunity. He certainly had an opportunity that second time to. It's not like the guy ran in front of the car to be hit by the car. Mm-hmm. He hit him full on. My, hello, my husband's actually called in. He's on the phone right now telling the number plate. Okay, he's on. We've got someone down here because the guy is bleeding like hell and he's on the phone. We're already on our way. We're already on our way. Like, if the guy who's driving the car, I can't even begin to tell you what a idiot. Like, he was, like, out to kill this guy. Okay, and he's... On purpose, like, it was hideous. He, he took him out, then maybe three times. This guy clunked his car and he drove on the wrong side of the road with the guy trying to fling him off. Okay, and... And there's blood everywhere. Alan Shepard, hearing that eyewitness account of the killing of your son, Darcy Allen, was chilling for me because it contrasted so radically with my understanding of what happened between him and Michael Bryant as I had read it in the press. How would you characterize that disparity? How would you characterize how the media portrayed that? tragic incident to the public? Well, the media had the wool pulled over their eyes the same as I did. If you recall the uh, the first coverage of the dropping of the charges, uh, I did a media scrum uh, along with the prosecutor, uh, Richard Peck, and I basically indicated that I would went along with what had been decided reluctantly because I thought that it was a case of class-based uh, justice. The rich and powerful guy got a lot of uh, attention and respect from the system, and my son was basically treated as roadkill. You know, I expressed that 
that, but I expressed an acceptance of the decision. And the media were working with the same material I was working with, which was the statement made by Special Prosecutor Richard Peck to the court explaining the decision. And it was, at the time, overwhelming to me. I mean, the evidence was just piling up and piling up and piling up against my own knowledge of what had my son's past was. It confirmed my worst fears. Uh, it wasn't until some months later when I actually got a copy of the transcript of what Mr. Peck said and read through it and uh, also by that time I had some emotional distance from the situation as well. And to, I, I could see that there were vast holes that, that, that there were in, in what he said. Uh, there were many cases where uh, when he was aware, he, Mr. Peck, was aware of inconsistencies and holes in the evidence that was being put forward by him on behalf of the defense, he made special efforts to fill those holes. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, go back to your initial question. The media were fed a very carefully crafted, very well spun and manipulated story. I would say that the media, some of them, at least the experienced court reporters among them, mm -hmm. shouldn't have been. They shouldn't have allowed themselves to have been that totally taken in. Um, where was the skepticism? Where was the where was the questioning? Where was the uh, second uh, holding somebody to account? They bought into it almost totally. Well, Alan, what I want to do now is is actually take a close look at at exactly how the media told this story to the public and contrast it with one of the uh, eyewitness accounts that we just heard. And this is not from um, an experienced courtroom reporter, but this is from one of the more high-profile stories about your son's death. This is uh, this is by Leah McLaren writing a cover story for Toronto Life magazine called Michael Bryant's Very Bad Year. Mm -hmm. So this is how she tells the story. Uh, quote, the cyclist Darcy Allen Shepard was drunk and ranting. Shepard pulled up in front of the sob. Bryant hit the brakes, causing his car to stall. When he started it again, the car lurched forward and Shepard shouted, possibly because the bumper nudged his back wheel. Okay, so right off the bat, we have uh, some disparity in these two accounts. What the eyewitness told the homicide squad was that Bryant intentionally drove his car, uh, albeit softly, into your son's bicycle, and, th and that, uh, that caused your son to fall off of his bicycle. Uh, quoting from the piece again, as Bryant later told police, it was at this point he had his first twinge of fear. All right, so I just want to pause to point out uh, the use of language that McLaren is choosing here um, in, in terms of actions. Who's doing what? The car lurched forward. The bumper nudged. None of these actions are attributed to Bryant. You know, we usually say, uh, I turned, I stopped, I got into an accident. But in this case, it, it's not attributed to Bryant. It's, it's, it's to parts of the car. So what, if anything, did Bryant do? Uh, we, we get an emotional account of that. He felt a twinge of fear. Quoting again from the piece, in his rush to start the car and get out of there, Bryant panicked, causing the vehicle to stall and surge forward again, this time hitting Shepard hard enough that he toppled onto the hood. So McLaren here is stating as fact that the second time Bryant hit Shepard with his car, it was by accident. Now, of course, the witness that we heard earlier was, was certain that this was done on purpose, that Bryant hit your son with his car twice intentionally. That's how the witness saw it. McLaren states otherwise and provides nothing to, to substantiate that assertion. Quoting again, according to forensic reports, Bryant never shifted out of first gear. 
his car staying around 35 kilometers an hour. So that's interesting because here she does substantiate it. It's according to forensic reports. And I suppose that that might be true. But as we heard the, the eyewitness say, uh, he felt that Bryant was flooring it, going as fast as he possibly could. So the question is, can you floor it and still be going at 35 kilometers an hour? And like, sure, if you don't go too far, which which Brian didn't. But, you know, being dragged by a car at, at 35 kilometers an hour uh, is, is is still pretty fast, especially, you know, uh, if we imagine that that car is, is, is ramming you into a fire hydrant. I mean, that's obviously it was fast enough uh, to get a person killed. There's a whole lot of stuff to deconstruct there, but let me start relative to the speed. And I think at that point, uh, understand, everything that happens in my mind, once the car is racing away, is um, a, a, a kind of a, not an irrelevance, but it's a separate story. It's what happened when Mr. Bryant's car hit my son. Mm-hmm. And whether or not that was deliberate, as this witness says, or whether it was accidental due to fear and panic and st- starting and stalling, as Mr. Bryant says, and that was never tested in court. Uh, it was uh, the version that was put forward was the version of the incident given by Mr. Bryant to Mark Sandler, who was Richard Peck's agent in Toronto uh, for the investigation and who conducted and controlled, uh, to a large extent, the police investigation. Mr. Bryant gave his version of the story without prejudice, without meaning that it was not sworn, it wasn't Mm cross-examined. All of those, uh, you know, in other words, it could never be used against him in court. So the version that comes out is uh, from Mr. Peck is Mr. Bryant's version of the event. So both the Crown Prosecutor and Toronto Life magazine are presenting Michael Bryant's side of this. Yes, absolutely. There's this part in here, too, that she writes, Shepard reached inside the car and grabbed the wheel. That is stated as fact yep. in this Toronto Life article. The eyewitness said, no, mm-hmm. it was the headrest or, this, or the inside of the door. My understanding was like, okay, this guy was drunk. He has this whole history of altercations with cars. And here he is, and I think a lot of people felt this way, reaching into your car, this drunk madman. We've all seen angry Bikers, we've all seen that bike messenger type, aggressive. Here he is reaching into your car and grabbing the steering wheel. And a lot of people, I think, felt, well, I could understand why Bryant would just want to get the heck out of there as soon as he possibly could. But that, that which is presented as fact here seems to be very much in dispute. Well, you're reacting the way you were expected to act by the people who wrote that description, beginning with Marie Hanane and, and Mr. Bryant initially, and then uh, followed up with Mr. Peck and Mr. Sandler uh, later, uh, basically taking over the theory of the case that, that was the, the defense's version and presenting it uh, to the court and to the media as fact. And it was never, ever tested under trial conditions. We're, le- we're leaving out uh, one of the parties that ha- may- played a role in crafting this narrative, which is Navigator. I think Matt Navigator's role is perhaps overstated. I think they had a role. I'm quite convinced that in spite of Mr. Bryant's protestations of helplessness in this situation, that he was in pretty much in full control of what happened from the time of the incident until the charges were dropped. He was already in his call to 911 
saying to the 911 operator that my son took a swing at him Mm -hmm. as he went past. If you look at the video again, if you talk to people who are at the scene, my son never took a swing at him. He couldn't. He was passing the car too quickly and too far away. But the notion that my son took a swing at him or might have taken a a swing at him is necessary right from the beginning to establish a foundation of self-defense. Well, and in fact, Peck uh, in his executive summary wrote, the evidence establishes that Mr. Shepard was the aggressor in the altercation. Well, yes, because uh, that's required under law. They have to identify an aggressor. Unfortunately, the law is a, is a zero-sum, either-or game, right? Right. I can accept that as lawyers, you would decide that you couldn't get a conviction given my son's background mm-hmm. right? and, and the kinds of things that you expressed, the general uh, perception of bu- uh, messengers and, and, and bike, uh, cyclists and how they behave. I cannot accept your going beyond that and exonerating Mr. Bryant and saying he had no part in the uh, in in what happened, and Mr. Sandler said we didn't say that, and I said of course you did. You said specifically Mr. Shepard was the aggressor, and he comes back at me and says, well, yes, he was. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the position that that has to be established in order to justify dropping the charges. And they established that based on he aggressed by placing his bike in front of Michael Bryant's no, car? No. How did he aggress? They established that with the, with the six previous witnesses. It's a, it, it is a very devious, manipulative, underhanded process that went on. They established with six witnesses, and my son had a record of being aggressive with drivers. Mm-hmm. Okay. In some of those cases, at least, including one with a very dramatic photograph in, in which my son actually uh, grabs onto the side of the car and appears to reach into it. In a previous case. Yes, previous previous cases, previous cases, previous. Michael Bryan has a previous reputation as well. Uh, and, and what happened in this incident? Here you get into uh, the basis of the, the decision was uh, a scopolidi defense, as it's called. Okay. Scopolidi defense basically allows a defendant to use the past behavior of a victim to justify current behavior if there is a pattern established by the defense uh, of aggression Mm-hmm. In similar circumstances. So those six witnesses establish a pattern of aggression by my son against drivers. So on, when you have another situation that happens on Bloor Street West where my son grabs onto a car, that behavior is then referenced back to previous history where my son was supposedly never tested in court at all. The aggressor, and so in you have previous cases. The I mean, from previous he, cases, he grabbed yes. the car after that car struck him twice. Yep, but and, that's, he, and yet he's the aggressor against but, Michael Bryant. But uh, but that's uh, uh, that's where the thing gets so crazy because I have no problem. I, I have some <laughs> some questions about ethics and morals and, and integrity and all that with the defendant 
trying to put the best spin on the event the, uh, to serve his uh, efforts to be acquitted. I don't, you know, we, we can expect that. But we also can expect that the prosecutors would put that evidence, those claims, those assertions, that theory of the case to attest. And they didn't. They did not. They simply accepted what you see in that summary is a summary of Marie Hanane, Mr. Bryan's lawyers, her theory of the case. Uh, it was almost to the point where I suspect that she either wrote it uh, – it was either taken and and praised by uh, the prosecution or whatever. It was originated with her. Why? Why would the prosecution – Go along with that. It's contrary to what they exist to do. Uh, well, that's a good question. Is it because my son was a, a messenger and Mr. Bryant was part of the establishment in Toronto? Uh, that's one interpretation. Is it because uh, without having to, anybody having to say so, Mr. Peck and Mr. Sandler understood that the case had to be swept under the rug for the convenience of uh, the government. Remember, the government, I think, at that time was expecting to have to go to an election. Mm -hmm. They certainly did not want this trial, if it had gone to trial, running at the time uh, when an election was, was going. Uh, the polls, I think, were saying that the McGuinty government was in trouble. If you've read some of the things that Marie Hanane has written recently, uh, she talks about being under tremendous pressure from her peers in the legal community to get what she calls the right decision. Uh -huh. If she was under that pressure, do you think Mr. Sandler was not? Mr. Peck wasn't here, of course. So it was uh, Mr. Sandler was the rep representative of the uh, prosecution in, in, in that stage of the, uh, the investigation. So uh, there was a, apparently, according to Maria Hanane, um, a, a consensus among the elite legal establishment in this uh, city that uh, Mr. Bryant should be uh, let go. We can never know, I suppose, what kind of phone calls were made behind the scenes and, and how that political pressure, you know, if any, was exerted. But we can see on the public record how the media handled this. And, you know, my focus mm. here is on the media. And going through it all, I mean, just the title of the Toronto Life cover story, Michael Bryant's bad year and his surprise comeback. I, I imagine it was a pretty bad year for you, too. And. And for your son. Remember that Toronto Life is the mouthpiece of the establishment in Toronto, is it not? I mean, that's the way I read it, coming from Edmonton and having, but having lived in Toronto. It's the mouthpiece for, for, the, for the Toronto establishment. The CBC is not the mouthpiece for the establishment. It's the public broadcaster. And yet Amanda Lang was, was the one who interviewed Michael Bryant in a feature interview on The National. There was a complaint to the ombudsperson because Amanda Lang does not say in the outset of that interview, I'm about to interview Michael Bryant. I have to make a disclosure. About 13 minutes in, she slips in, I have known you a long time. So it's sort of a strange thing as, as he's been given this forum to just, for you know, a very long time, tell his, his side of the story. And I don't know what that meant. I have known you a long time. You know, what can you tell me about what you know about the nature of Amanda Lang's relationship with Michael Bryant? Well, Amanda Lang is the daughter of Otto Lang who was a prominent uh, liberal cabinet minister in, the, I think, in the Trudeau area, era. And I have to assume that she's her father's daughter, so she's probably active in or sympathetic to liberal party politics. Uh, Mr. Bryant, uh, 
Ditto. They obviously were friends. I assume they met uh, through political activities one kind or another. I could be wrong. But one of the themes that goes through uh, some of the media discussion and responses that you get from attorney general's office and so on was that the prosecution was independent in that it was conducted by a special prosecutor from Vancouver. The term independent in that case means only independent of the attorney general. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were trying to communicate to the public. Bryant is so well known throughout the uh, political circles and the elite in, in, in Ontario that we, we can't – we're going to keep this really clean. We're going to bring in somebody from, from B.C. But the easy and I think for a lot of people automatic assumption that he's also independent of Mr. Bryant. But he wasn't. Mm-hmm. The prosecution was conducted by lawyers who are first of all by – training, by habit, by practice, by whatever, defense lawyers, not prosecutors. Mm -hmm. Their automatic sympathy goes naturally and understandably to the defendant. But what what, what link, if any, can you draw between Peck and and, and Bryant? Not directly between Peck and Bryant, but again, I go back to uh, the a statement by Marie Hennain that she was under pressure yeah. to get the right decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, and where was that pressure coming from? At, at the level that we're talking about of, of lawyers in this country, uh, they all know each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't suggest that Peck and Bryant are close. They both come from B.C., Mm-hmm. They both went to the same university, different generations. Mr. Bryant's father went. As far as I, I've heard, that they were members of the same fraternity. They're certainly members of the same law society, I think. They're, you know, there are, there are all kinds of connections yeah. that go between lawyers at that level. And then nobody has to sit down and actually have a conspiratorial agreement. You have, as I sometimes put it, they just swim in a different pool than the rest of us do. Yeah. Understand that what was said by the witness uh, that, you, that you played at the beginning, that was never tested in court yeah. either. Those people are all set aside. as What Mr. Peck says in his statement is, as for the witnesses on the scene, there were consistencies and inconsistencies, but the one consistency was that Mr. Shepard was loud and aggressive throughout. Now, that's directly contradicted by what that, this witness says, 912. He says they said nothing. Yeah. He was surprised. He by, explicitly said that, yeah. yeah. Several times. Yeah. There was no loud exchange between them. He almost describes kind of like a, um, like a silent standoff. I'm going to get yeah. in front of your car and smile like I'm going to show you. And then, and, and then Brian doesn't yell at him. He's like, you know, why don't you just yell at him? The suggestion there is that, you know, this is the kind of thing that in his prior experience, he, you know, he's yelled expletives when he's in an altercation on the road. But this was something that both men were silent and then there was – this violence. Evidence says that my son said two things. Uh-huh. One of which was when he stopped in front of the car, he turned and said quite quietly, I suppose you want me to move now. Yeah. Uh, and the other one was when he got up from the street, as Mr. Bryant was already driving away, Yeah. 
which is directly contradictory to any suggestion that my son grabbed the wheel and made it cross over to the other side of the street. Uh-huh. As he got up, he pointed to people around and saying, you people are my witnesses. Uh-huh. Why would he say that? He obviously felt, as you said earlier, that he had been assaulted by Mr. Bryant uh, in his vehicle. There was an initial reaction from the press of skepticism about how quickly Bryant hired Navigator. There were articles about the spin. There were details. I didn't know this because it's not on uh, the the, the guy who founded Navigator, Jamie Watt. If you go to his Mm -hmm. Wikipedia page, all you read is that he campaigned prominently for same-sex marriage and he served as a leader for the Canadian Human Rights Campaign. He was given a a leadership award. That's what you get on on Jamie Watt's Wikipedia page. It shows you how good he is at public relations because what's missing from there and what I I learned today reading the initial coverage is that he was uh, convicted of fraud. He was a convicted criminal. Mm -hmm. That Jamie Watt was convicted of fraud for forging banknotes. If your son had his own $600 an hour crisis management team, they may have brought that into question. They may have brought Michael Bryant's past reputation into question. I don't know what to conclude about the media's treatment of this. On the one hand, they only had the facts that they had, but even now they're doing it. I mean, even now the Globe and Mail published uh, that op-ed by him uh, in which, you know, he he invokes the same passive language that that McLaren wrote in her exonerating piece. I mean, like, here's how he described uh, this all as something that happened to him. And, and the Globe publishes this stuff. So, so Bryant said that what happened was he was, uh, quote, charged with a serious criminal offense that involved death. Alan, like, I don't, I don't know if there are legal concerns that, that prevent you from just saying this. I mean, can you just say it? Did Michael Bryant kill your son? Well, uh, yes, uh, I, I can say Michael Bryant killed my son. Whether or not he killed him deliberately uh, is is another issue. I well, think yeah, he, we don't I know think that. he ran him down deliberately. The, yeah, uh, uh, and and I think that uh, having done that and having realized what he had done, uh, I think he fled the scene. Yeah, and and should have been charged. I mean, that's what it sounds like is that your your son was grabbing onto the car as Bryant was fleeing the scene. Yes, of- and that's what the witness that we listened to and his wife both say. Yeah, because my son chased after the car and grabbed onto it. I think because he wanted not to keep Mister Bryant from running away because he wanted to see him charged or whatever. He wanted to get money to fix his bike because yeah. his bike had been wrecked yeah. and he had to go to work tomorrow. Yeah. His income situation was that shaky yeah. as a messenger that if he didn't go to work tomorrow, he'd probably have uh, rent difficulties or f- food difficulties or whatever. So these, these accounts are so radically different. I, again, I mean, I can relate to – Trying to drive off when somebody's trying to reach into my car and put the hand on the steering wheel. I can't relate to hitting someone on purpose twice with my car and then trying to drive off. Like that, that changes my entire conception well, of this. And that is that is what I heard from the witness. I am not saying that that is what happened, but that's what we just heard the witness say. There are two conflicting versions. One of which was that Mr. Bryan essentially lost control of the car due to fear and panic. Yeah. And he was so frightened that he, he he lost his ability to coordinate a manual shift car. Wasn't on purpose. It's, it was a panic. Uh, yes. It was an accident that yes. Bryant was responsible for. And and I uh, I'm even willing to concede that maybe on the third, the most violent hit, something like that happened. 
But I'm, uh, I, I think you have to. Uh, On the third acceleration. Yeah. But Not the first time he hit no, the back wheel. The first wheel. time, I th- uh, you know, my, my interpretation or my alternative theory of the case for trial before a, ju- before a yeah. jury would have been uh, the car moved forward three times at least. And the first two were simply nudges forward to try to intimidate my son to get out of the way. Yeah. The third Still hitting one, someone with a car. Yeah. Uh, the third one, he may have. Yeah. But this would be in anger. He didn't lose control of the car in panic three times, right? No. Like He lost control because he was angry. Road rage was the first interpretation that came out in the media. And where did they get that? They got that from the police. Where did the police get that? They got that from this witness. Media coverage at the beginning was that he and his wife were coming home from a romantic tete-a-tete dinner celebrating their 12th wedding anniversary. As he tells it, they were they had a serious argument, if not outright fight, uh, over uh, the her desire to leave the marriage. Yeah. So he was coming back from having had a very difficult conversation with his wife, feeling very frustrated in an ideal state, uh, according to traditional interpretations, to uh, fall a victim to road rage. There was something so creepy about watching the tone of the coverage change, that kind of initial response of like, well, this sounds like a road rage thing. And the navigator was hired. This all looks like it, it smells. The media was aggressive. The media starts to back off. All the stuff about your son's history starts to come out. These very sympathetic stories about, oh, well, what would you do if somebody's reaching? And, and suddenly we see public perception shift. And that was, you know, an intentional, that was a, that was a paid for process. Certainly navigator had something to do with that. I, I think Mr. Bryant himself had a lot to do with that. Uh, I think uh, Marie Hanane had a lot to do with that. Remember, successful lawyers like Marie Hanane are good manipulators of of public opinion. They have to be. Finally, to to the point where Bryant is publishing a book and on the cover of Toronto Life, and then the Globe and Mail is is running pieces by him where he is introduced as an advocate for the homeless. Yes, which I think is there's irony within irony there. Well, it's yeah. morbid. I mean, it's yeah. uh, considering that my son was uh, homeless, but for for his early years in Toronto. Yeah. Considering that he was a squeegee guy, uh, just up the street here in Spadina and Queen. Yeah, uh, uh, and it's the squeegee guys that that Mr. Bryant uh, is is uh, attempting to defend. I have. My issues with Mr. Bryant, but uh, in a lot of things, he's someone that I kind of, in a way, feel morbidly sorry for. I mean, he was someone who was on top of the world, and he and he got knocked off through, I think, his own uh, behavior. Yeah. But it's a kind of a, a hubris-based tragedy in the old Greek tragedy style. But, but we're watching, and many have suggested, you know, this is a long game he's playing towards uh, rehabilitating, you know, but, Toronto Life talking about his surprising comeback. But, well, there, but you asked the earlier, the earlier question, why did Mr. Peck and Mr. Sandler give Mr. Bryant the laying on of hands to say he's exonerated. He had no responsibility forever. He was the the, the victim of a, a, of a lightning bolt by fate thrown uh, down mm-hmm. onto the, was the streets of Bloor Street West. <clears throat> We've got to help him 
Uh-huh. I think well, that's one alternative that went through their minds. We've got to help him recover his uh, career because he's a good guy and he has the potential to be prime minister of Canada. I mean, you, th- that came out in one of the stories. What are you trying to accomplish at this point? What am I trying to accomplish at this point? What I've been trying to accomplish uh, from the beginning. I I think that the... the uh, uh, way that the prosecution was conducted by Richard Peck and uh, and uh, uh, Mark Sandler is just unacceptable. I I think that it's a perversion of justice, and uh, I want to get them one way or another uh, for whatever it is. If all if uh, if the most I can do is embarrass them. Then I'll try to do that. Uh, I would like to have them tried. Mm-hmm. by the Law Society of Upper Canada, because I think they did not do their jobs. They undermined, and, and I, I believe, deliberately so, undermined the integrity of the justice system in Ontario and thereby all across Canada. Is there any path, any recourse through which it's conceivable that you could hold Michael Bryant accountable and actually bring him to trial where he'd no. have to answer for what that, no they 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 have put us they have they being Mr. Peck and Mr. Sandler have put a roadblock in front of that yeah they so, have they have exonerated him the, the media have not on the whole been friendly uh, the only me, the, the only friendliness i've had from the media in Toronto has been from people who are, I would almost say, congenitally politically opposed to Bryant as a liberal. Yeah. And so you get Michael Corrin and you get Laurie Goldstein, uh, who, uh, who, who have ad hominem. Uh, so then you've got to get in league with people who are his political opponents. Uh, yeah. 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 And, and, but, but, uh, but Jennifer Wells at the Star has been, uh, has been very supportive. Yeah. And Now Magazine yeah. has been very supportive. Right. Also, arguably, well, so, I, 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 don't, I don't know that they would like to, me to use the term supportive, but they have listened. Uh, they have thought outside the box that has been created for them by Mr. Peck and Mr. Sandler. I mean, I, I don't mean to make my issue here as a media critic and my critique of the Canadian media. You know, the, the issue for you, you've got bigger fish to fry in, in, in what looks like a huge miscarriage of justice and in your son's memory. However, I have to question whether or not the exoneration of Michael Bryant would have been possible had the media put up more resistance and asked more questions and been less accepting. If there was an incredible public outcry and a call for justice, could you sell that? Well, the the exoneration, uh, of course, happened at the time of dropping charges. So, but, uh, but understand, again, Mr. Peck never used the word exonerate in, in his statement. Uh, I've had people tell me that legally he couldn't. Yeah. But, but if you read the response afterward, you, you see that the media, including the Amanda Lang interview, had a trailer across the bottom saying Michael Bryant exonerated. So exoneration was the effective result of what Mr. Peck said. Yes. This is something that occurs to me a lot, which is if there's no conviction, technically that is not an exoneration, but the effect – what is communicated sometimes explicitly uh, 
is that people think, well, he's, he was exonerated. And that's yeah, – they, yeah. no, they, they just couldn't it, – it, it, it just didn't end in a conviction or in this case even at a trial. But that doesn't mean that – And, and uh, there – again, the – given the, the state of uh, media today – Mm-hmm. Given the the amount of time and and often the amount of experience that uh, that reporters have to to cover cases like this, they you know, they're probably juggling that with three or four other things. There there I don't know if there were any reporters that were exclusively assigned to cover that story. I don't blame the the run of the mill reporters. I have some reservations and and, and about. Uh, <laughs> The people who have experience and have and, and responsibility in that area, namely Rosie Damano mm-hmm. and and Christy Blatchford, who are for their respective papers at the time the crime reporters. Yeah. So they they spend how many years at trials? What was your impression of their coverage? Well, Rosie Damano's I think was just uh, like like Leah McLaren. Rather, it was just a defense of about, uh, but uh, in such a way as, as also to badmouth and trash my son. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, Christy Blatchford was a, uh, was more subtle when she wrote about the dropping of charges. She began I, her statement was, "Let's face it, it was the right decision." Uh-huh. Uh, but then went on to uh, point out that Mr. Bryant and his lawyer were being disingenuous, to say the least, to say that they were treated badly by the system. And she put it at the end, he got the sob treatment where anybody else in his, uh, with the same charges would have gotten the Volkswagen treatment. People are going to feel very differently and they're going to have very different reactions to our conversation. People already have very different opinions about this case. I don't know that it's within the realm of reason to imagine that this would have played out the way that it did had it been anyone but Michael Bryant or somebody of his position with his connections, with his resources. The the law did not operate the same as it would if it was you or I. Absolutely. Uh, And how would it have operated if positions had been reversed, if my son had been the driver and Mr. Bryant had been the cyclist, and if everything else had happened exactly the same way? That's your Canada Land Show. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me now at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read them all. I respond when I can. I'm on Twitter at Jesse Brown. The website is CanadaLandShow.com. The crowdfunding site is Patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Hey, if you live in Toronto, come have a drink with me at Handlebar in Kensington Market this Wednesday night, the 8th at 8 p.m., where I will be announcing the hosts of our upcoming politics show. And if you can't make it, I will also announce it on the next episode of CanadaLand Shortcuts, which will be up on Thursday. If you like this show, support it. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.